This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley in for Terry Gross. Today, we're going to remember restaurant critic and food writer Mimi Sheraton, who died last week at the age of 97. When she was a child, one of her favorite dishes was her mother's chicken a la king. She went on to dine at many of the finest restaurants in the world. She wrote about food for New York Magazine for five years. Then, from 1976 to 1983, she was the food and restaurant critic for the New York Times. She was the first woman to review restaurants for that paper. Her verdicts were reputed to have the power to make or break new restaurants, and she often dressed in disguise to make sure she got the treatment of a regular diner. Over one 11-month period, she tasted everything in the Bloomingdale's food department, 1,961 items. It was the subject of one of her best-known articles. Sheraton wrote 16 books, including cookbooks and a memoir. When she became food critic for Time magazine in 1984, she broadened her focus to national and international eating trends. But she continued to cover the New York restaurant scene with her subscription-only newsletter, Mimi Sheraton's Tastes. Terry Gross spoke to Mimi Sheraton in 1987. When you're reviewing a restaurant, what's your method of ordering so that you can uh, really judge how the food is prepared? Well, uh, usually we're four people. Um, My husband and I usually go first to see if it's going to be worth reviewing, but then it's usually four people, and I ask people to order what I want to see, and as the visits progress, the choices narrow. But what I try for is an across-the-board sampling of the menu. I want to see, obviously, different foods, how they do veal and chicken and fish and beef, but I also want to see how they fry and broil and saute and poach. I want to see if they have them, how classic dishes are rendered, and I want to know how the house creations are rendered. I like to see a restaurant at a slow meal and at a very busy meal. If there's an important lunch scene as well as dinner, I make sure that half of my visits are at lunch and the other half at dinner. I never review in fewer than three visits and rarely in fewer than four or five. You are always very careful about protecting your identity. I mean, that's one of the things that is legendary about you. You're never photographed with your face shown. Um, How have you managed to keep your identity as protected as it's been? Though, to tell you the truth, I imagine a lot of New York restaurants really do know who you are. (laughs) Indeed, they do. I would say about half of the places I go to in New York know who I am. Mm -hmm. I I can still get into 50% of them without them knowing. But um, the the other truth of that is is that the 50% who know me are 100% of the fashionable places where I would least like to be known. I mean, they're most tuned into it, and I've been doing this for a long time, so waiters move around from job to job, and a waiter might recognize me if it's an owner who hasn't been on the scene before. But beyond that, outside of New York, I have never been recognized in a restaurant except 
maybe by a diner who knows me, a friend. So I have absolutely no problem outside of New York. And of course, in my work for Time Magazine or my newsletter or Condé Nast Traveler or any of the other places I write for, I do a lot of work outside of New York and outside of the United States. So I have no problem there. What I do in New York, the places that really know me will no longer be fooled by a wig and glasses, which is what I used to do. Um, because they know my husband, because they know what the rest of me looks like, even without my head. Uh, so that doesn't work. But I never make a reservation in my own name, ever. Um, if it's a place that I know will know me, we always eat with two other people that the restaurant will not know, and they arrive first to see if they get the table we requested when making the reservation. I usually say, you know, put us in the back or put us in the front or could we have a round table instead of a banquette. So we see if that's honored. Uh, if not, we ask the, the people who are going to be there first, our friends, to ask for that kind of table. If they're not given it, then they just take what they get. Uh, now and then they try to tip to see if that will get them a table. And I must say that really works. Oh, uh, do, do you hope that it won't work? Would that be a sign I of don't corruption if, if tipping got them a better table? I don't care. I mean, if you say, do I hope? I mean, I don't really want a restaurant to do the wrong thing. But what's the, is the wrong thing to accept the tip and show you the better table? Indeed it is. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It's called selling tables in the restaurant business, and it's supposed to be a no-no um, in, in a place that has a really good management. They would not go for that. Can it's I, a crummy kind of thing to do. Can I interrupt here and ask you what kind of wigs you used to wear? <laughs> well, I have a whole wardrobe. There was one that was sort of henna, a long page boy with bangs, which I called my 30s Greenwich Village lady poet wig. I had a very um, uh, pale silvery blonde bouffant that came down over one eye, which I called my five towns wig, which are the five towns out in... Nassau County. In Long Island. Uh, yes. And uh, I had a very curly sort of um, not quite black hair, because that would have looked very strange with my skin, but quite dark that I really didn't have a name for. <laughs> and those are the three I used a great deal of the time. I still take them sometimes for certain out-of-town places uh, where a few customers might know me. In Washington, D.C., and Chicago, I often take the wigs. Um, now, in your newsletter, you recently described one Italian restaurant as having an atmosphere that is gloomy, dated, and suggestive of an old age home. That's a, a pretty <laughs> negative thing to say. It was a pretty negative place. Uh, I'm going to read something else you said that is also equally scary for a restaurant. You described another restaurant's special white room as a blazing dining room that suggests a high-toned interrogation center. Now, if I were that restaurant, I would not be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not in the business of pleasing restaurants. Were you ever threatened by a restaurant owner? Never really um, flatly. There was one restaurant that got a very bad review, and it was a very famous restaurant for a long time. It used to be very good, and they got a very bad review in my early days of reviewing at the New York Times. And they did say, if you know what's good for you, you will never come in here again. But that's the closest that anyone has ever threatened me. Anybody ever sued you or threatened to? A couple of times, yes. There was once papers were actually served, but nothing ever came of it. And a couple of times restaurants have threatened to, but never did it. 
I guess that would be a very uh, bad precedent for food writers if you could get sued for saying bad things well, about you, a restaurant. You can get sued, and in fact, uh, Galt Mio, the French critics, were not only sued, but they lost a judgment that was later reversed. Mr. Chow sued them for $20,000 in damages and won, but that was overturned uh, in an appeal. In an appeal. Uh, you can be sued indeed, and I think one of the things that um, has protected me is that anyone who sues me for what I had written in the New York Times or Time magazine takes on the New York Times and Time magazine and are probably reluctant to do so. And uh, for the newsletter, I indeed will have libel insurance. Well, you are very controversial because your opinions are so uh, clearly stated. If you are recognized in a restaurant in spite of the wig you might be wearing, in spite yeah. of your efforts to remain anonymous. Are you ever asked to leave? Uh, I have been uh, refused service once and asked to leave once, and uh, did so in both cases. Uh, although uh, I've had a number of lawyers now who feel that a restaurant uh, restaurant's case would not hold up. There was an old um, interpretation of what's called the innkeeper's law, uh, that stated that um, a hotel or restaurant owner had the right to refuse service to anyone he or she wanted to as long as it was not on grounds of race, religion, um, sex. Um, and so when I, I was always prepared for that happening, and I asked the lawyers at the Times what they wanted me to do, and they said, just go. And uh, it happened at the water club on um, on the East River. Uh, I, I had had one meal there when they didn't recognize me, and then I sat down. We were six people, and uh, someone came over and said that they had reason to believe there was a critic at the table, <laughs> and uh, they <laughs> wouldn't serve us. So we left. And then another restaurant refused uh, me a table when I got there with a reservation that someone else had made. However, there are, as I say now, I've been hearing from a lot of lawyers, even some up at the Cornell Hotel School, who feel they would love to fight that case because they don't think that that would stand up. Uh, I, I avoid it unless too many places do it because it will be a pyrrhic victory. My picture, you know, if it got to be a really talked about case and my picture were in all the papers and so on, uh, it would defeat something else that I'm trying to do. Yeah, one more thing about anonymity. Now, your secret's safe with me about what you look like, because after all, I'm speaking to you from Philadelphia, you're in New York, we're speaking via satellite, and I can't really see what you look like. However, the engineer who's recording your interview in New York right now might have a Polaroid camera. I mean, does this ever happen that someone takes a shot of you and tries to mail it to a major American publication to blow your cover? In the first place, how do you know I'm really Mimi Sheraton? I may have sent <laughs> someone else. <laughs> uh -huh. no one knows I can... <laughs> but um, there are pictures around, and um, I think that anyone who has wants one has one. I think perhaps one of the worst hazards of the trade a food writer faces is overeating. You're forced to have rich meals and many of them. And I know that you had taken a five-month leave from the New York Times when you were still working with them 
to uh, lose weight. Is this, is this really difficult to deal with when you're writing about food? It's very difficult to deal with, but in truth, I would have to say that uh, I probably have pursued this career as an excuse to overeat. I think that the people who are really good at it are all in that position. Uh, you you love to eat, and therefore uh, this gives you a reason to do so and an excuse to do so. But I do try, I mean, even though I am very much overweight, I try not to have it get any worse than it is by compensating when I'm not reviewing. That's the trick, and that's also a very hard part because I love to cook. So if it's a night when I'm not going to a restaurant and I'm going to prepare dinner at home, I have that awful tug as to whether to make a simple piece of steamed fish or whether to make a marvelous bowl of pasta with, you know, something wonderful on it. And so so it is a struggle. Uh, I try to swim. I try to walk. I try to take periods off when... I don't have to eat. And my husband and I, when we are going on a real vacation, we try to find a place that is warm, that has very interesting things to see, and that has terrible food. And we have found a few countries that fulfill fulfill that. Because if we go someplace that has wonderful food uh, and food shops, we will spend all of our time in it. And that's what I do all year long. When you started writing for Time magazine, you said that you were especially interested in institutional food, where the eaters are a somewhat captive audience. Why are you interested in that? Because it's becoming an increasingly important part of eating in the United States, uh, and because I think that that food is much worse than it has to be. It's school eating, it's employee cafeteria eating, it's hospitals, it's airlines, it's executive dining rooms, and it um, it's pretty soon going to be about a third of the eating that most Americans do. And I feel the psychology and economy behind it are necessitating a kind of bad food that could be improved. Now, you've said that the only real dismal failure of your career was when you were a consultant for one year to uh, a university hospital trying to improve patient food there. Yes. Uh, what, what, what happened? Uh, this is interesting because of your inst- interest in institutional food. Apparently you tried to <laughs> make that, it better in one instance and couldn't do it. That's what got me interested in institutional food because it's the hierarchy, the bureaucracy you have to work with, the remoteness uh, of the people who are going to eat the food from the people who are preparing it. And because of the attitudes developed by the people who prepare the food in enormous quantities, it suddenly becomes something else. Um, the thing that defeated me there was very much the uh, the bureaucracy, the unions, the inability to get people to change their ways when you weren't there. My, my only solution was really to shoot the first person who deviated from a recipe. <laughs> that was, and I felt then we'd have no trouble with anybody else. But of course, they would have gone on strike if we had done that. <laughs> you would have lost your job anyways. Yes. Um, now, you, uh, as part of your survey of institutional food, you did one piece in which you flew all the different airlines and compared the meals that you were served on the planes. There was one particular leg of a, of a United Airlines flight that had superb food, uh, because I think it prepared the kind of food that could be done well within those circumstances. It struck me as a very extravagant trip to make, to, to buy all these airline tickets just to taste the food, though maybe you had other reasons for traveling. Too. I didn't buy the ticket. 
uh, Condé Nast bought the ticket (laughs) as a story that would get a lot of attention. And it certainly did, and that's it was very important to do. And en route, I did four other stories for them, so it wasn't quite as extravagant as it looked. What is your native food? What was the food that you were brought up on? Well, I was brought up, brought up in Brooklyn uh, in a Jewish family that was not kosher. And my mother made uh, what is considered Jewish food, but she made a lot of what is American food and what certainly was at the period, the sort of Fanny Farmer school of cooking, fried oysters, clam chowder, chicken pie, um, and traditional American food. I did write about it in a book called From My Mother's Kitchen, and it was, it is all of the food that I grew up on. Uh, but my parents loved to eat in restaurants, and we did go to what we called the city, meaning Manhattan, quite often to eat. And there were a few good uh, restaurants, especially seafood in in Brooklyn at that time. And we ate a lot of Chinese food. So uh, we were always aware of all of that. And my father was in the food business. He was uh, in the wholesale fruit and produce business in Washington Market. And my mother was a good cook. So there was always talk of food at the table and in the family. You had a very nice piece in the book about uh, your mother's cooking, a, 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 a piece on comfort cures and the, the kinds of food um, that your mother used to make for you when you were sick and home from school back yes. when you were a child. Yes. I still make them for myself. Do you? And what I, what I are did, they? What are the foods? Well, there were things like, um, as one was getting better, there would be eggnogs, there would be cinnamon toast, there would be baked custard with nutmeg on top. Uh, inevitably chicken soup, but I also liked things like um, oatmeal. And uh, I made a lot of those for my son when he was young. And um, they still seem to work. How much do you eat out now? I would say almost every night. We eat home on the average now about one and a half times a week. And I eat a couple of lunches a week out. Do you find that you behave differently or or even chew differently when you're eating out than you do when you're at home? I think I spend more time at the meal when I'm eating out. You know, when I left the Times, one of the things that I missed was cooking at home. And my husband and I said, now we're going to be able to eat at home. And so the first four nights, I cooked dinner at home. And the fourth night, we just looked at each other across the table and said, this is boring. The food was fine, but there was no scene. There was no one else to look at. And the meal is over so quickly when you eat at home compared to when you eat in a restaurant. So I don't think I chew differently. Um, We probably eat more when we eat at home because we can have seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't know if you're the kind of person who has to finish everything that's on the plate. Like whatever the portion is, small or large, that's what you're going to eat? Well, I try very hard not to. I almost always do finish. However, the one course that I find I can taste and leave is dessert. I'm not a dessert person. So I can take a couple of bites of a dessert and leave it. But I don't think that uh, I can practice what I call pasta interruptus. I think (laughs) that would not work. Do you have any guilty pleasures in food, uh, foods that aren't uh, especially well-prepared or even especially good for you that you really crave and love? Um, Do you mean junk food or do you mean food that isn't good for me? I mean, I like everything that isn't good for me and I eat it because I'm 
fortunately quite healthy and I don't have cholesterol or high blood pressure problems. Um, but there is no junk food that I crave. I, I, I would not say that. I mean, I like good potato chips. I like good peanut butter. I like well-made pizza, but I don't consider that junk food. I don't like Twinkies and I don't like um, frozen anything. So I don't really feel guilty except for eating too much. Mimi Sheridan, speaking to Terry Gross in 1987. The veteran restaurant critic and author, the first woman to serve as a restaurant critic for the New York Times, died last week. She was 97 years old. After a break, we'll remember actor Michael Lerner, who appeared in the movie Barton Fink and in several TV series and telemovies, including M.A.S.H. and The Missiles of October. And film critic Justin Chang reviews Showing Up, the new film from director Kelly Reichardt. I'm David Biancouli, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University, in for Terry Gross. Actor Michael Lerner, who died Saturday at age 81, was nominated for a supporting actor Oscar for his work as a Hollywood studio executive in the movie Barton Fink. But for most of his career, and it was a long one, he worked as a character actor, guest starring on dozens and dozens of TV shows through the decades. He guest starred on The Brady Bunch in the 60s, and That Girl, The Bob Newhart Show, Starsky and Hutch, and M.A.S.H. in the 70s. Michael Lerner also appeared on Hill Street Blues in the 80s, the Coen Brothers movie Barton Fink in the 90s, and, in this century, the movie Elf and several episodes of the TV series Glee. Some of his standout supporting roles came early, and in made-for-TV movies. The 1974 ABC telemovie The Missiles of October, a drama about the Cuban Missile Crisis, featured Michael Lerner as White House Press Secretary Pierre Salinger in a performance that Jackie Kennedy Onassis later told him, out pierre Pierre. Another memorable role by Michael Lerner in a TV movie, Lerner himself later called it one of his favorites, also had a Kennedy connection. He starred in the 1978 CBS TV movie Ruby and Oswald, opposite Frederick Forrest. Forrest played Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who assassinated JFK in 1963. And Lerner played Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby, who shot and killed Oswald days later. Here's a scene from Ruby and Oswald, in which Ruby is visiting his sister just after Kennedy's death. The sister also is played by a strong character actor, Doris Roberts, who later played the mother on the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. Well, at least tonight they'll be together. Who? The Kennedys. That wonderful big family. Look at all the pain and trouble they've had, huh? 
But they've endured it. They're very strong people. They love each other. They're so close. And right now, they're easing the pain for each other. Right now. That's the best part of a family. Well, same with us. I mean, we had our share of troubles, us Rubensteins. We were always there to help each other out. Huh? We did the best we could. But we were always being pulled apart so much. I mean, it wasn't easy to be close like the Kennedys. Poor Jackie. What she's gone through this minute. Those beautiful little kids. <laughs> Terry Gross spoke with Michael Lerner in 1992, the year after his role as Hollywood studio chief Jack Lipnick in Barton Fink. The title character is a New York theater writer played by John Turturro. He's new to Hollywood, and he very quickly is taken to the lavish office of Lerner's Jack Lipnick. Is that him? Is that Barton Fink? Let me, Adam. Let me put my arms around this guy. Let me hug this guy. How the hell are you? Good trip. My name is Jack Lipnick. I run this dump. You know that. You read the papers. Lou, treat me all right? Get everything you need? What the hell's the matter with your face? What the hell's the matter with his face, Lou? Uh, it's not as bad as it looks. It's just a mosquito in my room. Place okay? Where'd we put him? I'm at the Earl. Never heard of it. Let's move him to the Grand or the Wilshire. Hell, he can stay in my place. Thanks, but I wanted a place that was a little less... Less Hollywood. Sure, say it. It's not a dirty word. Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. You don't believe me? Take a look at your paycheck at the end of every week. That's what we think of the writer. So what kind of pictures does he like? Uh, Mr. Fink hasn't given a preference, Mr. Lipnick. So how about it, Bart? Well, uh... To be honest, I, I don't go to the pictures much, Mr. Lipnick. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's just fine. You probably walked in here thinking that was going to be a handicap, thinking that we wanted people who knew something about the media, maybe even thinking there was all kinds of technical mumbo-jumbo to learn. You were dead wrong. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bart? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? Is that more than one thing? Okay. The point is, I run this stump, and I don't know the technical mumbo-jumbo. Why do I run it? I got horse sense, damn it. Showmanship! And also, and I hope Lou told you this, I am bigger and meaner and louder than any other in this town. Did you tell him that, Lou? Now, who did you model the character on? I decided that Louis B. Mayer was a good image for Jack Lipnick because Louis B. Mayer was rather skitzy in terms of, on one side, on one hand, he was very paternalistic, very sweet, very charming, and on the other hand, quite a monster. And in reading about him, you know, he, he was the one, he was the guy who really discovered Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. And he was their paterfamilias. He was their father figure in many respects. And he was a very sentimental guy. But then he was quite brutal in his, in his business dealings as well. So um, I physically attempted to model myself on Louis B. B. Mayer because I, I felt that that helped me uh, be be the man, be the character. So what I did was I studied a lot of pictures of his hair, hair styling, um, the eyeglasses that he wore. I was very determined to wear a pair of eyeglasses that seemed exactly the kind of eyeglasses that he wore. There's a certain kind of charm that you use in, in, in Barton Fink that's this real over-the-top phony charm that, and you know that the person can turn on a dime and really kind of eat you up. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, mm-hmm. have you been treated that way, with, with this phony charm? Well, I don't know. I'm going to question you about that phony charm. How phony is it? I don't know. I think, you know the, uh, you know the uh, Yiddish expression, Hamish? Yeah. 
Yeah, like but fa- explain oh, it anyways. Family. Huh? Explain it anyways. Well, we're all family, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, uh, so I think I embrace Barton with a with an overwhelming paternalistic. We are now family. You are now with me, and we're working together. And I think there's a genuineness with. I, I guess it's contradictory, but I think or paradoxical, there's a genuineness in the charm, and that is that I do want this guy to work for me, and I do want him to, you know, he's because he's going to make me money, you know? And um, I, I don't think the charm gets oily until you, you begin to hear what I say, you know, some of the things I say. I think there's a distinction between what I say and how I look in the film. The parts that you're getting best known for now are parts like the studio head and Barton Fink and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Arnold Rothstein, the the gambler in, in Eight Men Out, and right. um, you know, a mafioso in Harlem Nights, and right. uh, you know, the, the team owner now in the HBO movie. Right. Now, I saw you in a horror movie in which you played the absolute opposite kind of character. The movie was called Anguish. It came one of out the best about films that, one of the best films I've ever done. It, it came out about five years ago. A very yeah. unusual movie, yeah. a, a horror yeah. film in which you play the the really backward son of. Um, of a, a kind of demented mother who hypnotizes you into yes. committing murders. The mother played by Zelda Rubinstein, yes. who is the uh, who was the uh, lady, the medium in Poltergeist. Yes, right. Yes, yes, Zelda. Uh, we, we that was an in- interesting part, and th- again, you know, this explains the career of an actor and the turmoil that we live with d- daily in our careers. Uh, I had been advised by my managers at the time not to do that part because it was so unflattering. Mm-hmm. To me, because I play a character who is quite uh, repulsive uh, in many respects. That's a good but word for God, it, yeah. But it was a great part. It's yeah. a great part. And also, it's a terrific Grand Guignol kind of movie. And over the years, I've had people like Sean Penn and Bob Dylan and... Um, how much more name-dropping can I do? Yeah, that, um, that'll do. <laughs> come, over, come over to me and just say... They think this is a terrific film, and they just loved what I did in the film. It's kind of becoming a cult movie. It's playing on all the cable channels all the time, and I'm getting a lot of attention for it. Michael Lerner speaking to Terry Gross in 1992. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Let's get back to Terry's 1992 interview with character actor Michael Lerner, who died Saturday at age 81. Let me ask you some things about your background. You grew up in Brooklyn, New York. What kind of neighborhood? The housing projects, Red Hook. Uh-huh. And what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my father was what you would... Uh, he liked to think he was an antique dealer, but uh, in all actuality, he was more like, 
like a junk dealer. Uh, my grandfather had a, had a store on the Lower East Side of Manhattan where he sold Venetian blinds and, in quotes, antiques. And my father used to work with my grandfather and... Um, you know that was that was their their relationship. My mother uh, was you know raised the children. Were you ever expected to go into the business? Oh, never, never. Um, that happened mysteriously. Um, uh, you mean become an actor? Um, no, 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 no. Were you ever expected to go into your father's business? Oh, into my father's business? Yeah. No, I don't think so. The real business in the family was my older brother, who was eleven years older than I am, and he he um, owned a delicatessen. Uh, a kosher deli in, in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn uh, called Zymar. was there for about 30 years. And when I went to Brooklyn College, my undergraduate time at Brooklyn College, I used to work in the deli. And when I went to Lafayette High School, I worked in the deli. And I think that uh, possibly there was thinking that I was going to take on the deli business and be a, you know, because I was a counterman for many years uh, in delis in New York, been fired from very good delis in New York. <laughs> what were you fired for? Oh, well, I got screwed up in making triple-decker sandwiches. I used to get the Zero Mustel sandwich and the Red Button sandwich screwed up. <laughs> the 6th Avenue, this is a true story, the 6th Avenue Deli in Manhattan. Yep. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So what was the difference between the Zero Mustel and the Red Buttons? Well, I think one had corned beef and one had pastrami, and I used to, <laughs> I used to, I used to screw it up, you know. And there was, a, I, I do remember vividly, it was a Peter Lynn Hayes, Mary Healy double-decker. <laughs> and I, I didn't know who they were. But, uh, you know, I found out who they were. Oh, they should name a sandwich after you now in one of those delis. Wouldn't it be nice? Well, you know, I love the Carnegie Deli in New York, and um, and the guys there, you know, as I'm getting to be more, you know, better known over the years, I mean, they're treating me real good now. I mean, when I walk into, when I walk into the place now, they put down, uh, you know, linen on, on the table. <laughs> so maybe eventually, maybe eventually uh, they'll name a sandwich for me. So nice. um, you said you originally yeah. wanted to be a sports writer. Yes. Um, in New York growing up, I was a sports quiz kid. I was a little fat kid who uh, just knew everything about baseball. Um, 1951, Stan Musial hit five home runs in a doubleheader. And there used to be a program on Channel 13 before it was PBS. Uh, Channel 13 in New York was really from New Jersey, and it was a Burt Lee Jr. show, and I was a, a quiz kid on that show when I was about 13, 14 years old. And I studied sports writing with Burt Lee Jr., and I don't know if the names Gussie Moran, Marty Glickman mean anything to you, but there used to be a, a program in New York, sports program. We're talking about the 50s now, 1950s. Mm -hmm. And I was a guest on that show quite a bit. So what got you interested in acting? Escape. Escape uh, from, I think, the narrow confines of the way I had been brought up in terms of uh, living in the housing projects in Brooklyn, which was very rough. Um, and for some reason, I, you know, I don't need, I really remember playing a donkey in a high school play. I don't even remember the name of the play, but I, I do remember playing Willie Loman at the age of 18 at Brooklyn College and graying my hair and putting on all these lines, these old age lines and stuff. And then looking in the mirror, my father standing in back of me and looking at me as I was taking my makeup off after the play and saying, Michael, you're an actor, aren't you? And I, I don't know, I became an actor. I wasn't, I, I, I was quite good academically, and I think um, I, I, I have a master's degree from graduate school in Berkeley, and then I, you know, I went on a Fulbright for two years. And I think a lot of people expected that I would be a teacher, and I, I did teach at San Francisco State for about a year. Um, and I was going to have an academic career, 
uh, an English professor, and for some reason, uh, I, I didn't want to do that. I like insecurity. I thrive on it. Have you always been able to make a living acting since you started? Amazingly, yes. Yeah. Has it always been taking roles you wanted to take, or are there a lot of roles that you took just to pay the rent? Oh no, there are quite a quite a quite a number of parts in the early days uh, in Los Angeles that I that I took to pay the rent. Uh, I mean, I did everything from Starsky and Hutch to the oh, I did a film recently that uh, didn't do that well called Newsies, and it was all these teenage kids in this movie, and. Um, they knew me, all these kids knew me, not from Arnold Rothstein, not from Jack Ruby, not from playing P.R. Salinger, not from Barton Fink. They all knew me as the bicycle salesman in the Brady Bunch. <laughs> was that, was that, that a regular part? No, 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 no. It was a one-time appearance. A one-time appearance. Can I tell you something that I find very amusing? Sure. Uh, I don't know. Maybe your, your listeners will. When I first came to Hollywood, uh, you know, I come with a lot of baggage. I'm 25 years old and, you know, I have a a lot of schooling behind me and all that. And I have a meeting with Aaron Spelling uh, on uh, the pilot of a TV show called Starsky and Hutch. Do you remember that show? Yeah. And, it's um, a cop to show. Two people, right, right. And um, I'm going to be reading for the part of Starsky, and I am slightly overweight, okay? And it's between me and Paul Michael Glazer, an actor named Paul Michael Glazer. And uh, I remember that <laughs> I wore a girdle when I went in to meet Aaron Spelling, and um, tried to impress him with all my academic credentials. And he uh, whispered to me, he said, Michael, Michael, no, you don't do that. You don't do that. You, know, you don't want to intimidate anybody. Uh, I wound up playing Fat Raleigh in that show, by the way. <laughs> so uh, he told you not to try to impress people with the fact that you were smart or had studied? Yeah, yeah. W I don't do that too much. So was that a lesson? Did you never do that again? True. <laughs> yes, for about 20 years. I kept quiet about it. You, you you said in a New York Times interview that your dream was to play a sympathetic, romantic leading man. Yeah, lumpen prole, lumpen <laughs> proletariat. Yes, that's yes. Still, still still your dream. Absolutely, absolutely. I just like to play not a larger than life character. I like to play somebody who's simple, who's got problems with his family, and um, you know, in the whole world of European film, uh, the kind of people like Philippe Noiret and Jean Gabin. There's a you know, the the middle-aged guy who is every man, who is, you know, can be skinny, can be fat, can be in between, but he's he's the leading character. He's the person that you care about. He's not a romantic, sexy person necessarily. And in, in European films, that, that tradition has seemed much stronger than in American films. Do you agree with that? Oh, come on. It's it's nearly absent right now in American films. Yeah. I mean, the closest you get to it, I guess, is somebody like Gene Hackman. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, the unusual leading yeah. man, but I mean, I'd like to, uh, to play characters that are, you know, have, have the problem and the, the movie's about them. Yeah, sure. You know, you know, the problem with the kind of parts that I often get offered are that they're very vivid, small parts, cameos, you know, or smaller roles. And, what, what? you know, in Barton Fink, I'm on screen maybe 15 minutes. Yeah. And um, I would just like to have parts in film that I, that I used to have in the theater, which are just more substantial. Michael Lerner speaking to Terry Gross in 1992. The veteran character actor who was nominated for an Oscar for his supporting performance in the Coen Brothers movie Barton Fink died Saturday. He was 81 years old. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews Showing Up, 
the new movie directed and co-written by Kelly Reichardt. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Three of this year's Academy Award-nominated actors, Michelle Williams, Hong Chow, and Judd Hirsch, appear together in the new comedy Showing Up, now playing in theaters. It's the latest from the director and co-writer Kelly Reichardt, and it stars Williams as a struggling sculptor being pulled in many directions as she tries to meet a looming deadline. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. Showing Up is the fourth movie that Kelly Reichardt and Michelle Williams have made together, and I hope there are many more to come. Their collaboration has given us some of Williams's most quietly memorable characters, a young drifter living out of her car in Wendy and Lucy, or a 19th century pioneer heading west along the Oregon Trail in Meek's Cutoff. Showing Up is a lighter, funnier piece of work, It's pretty much the first Reichardt movie that could be described as a comedy. But like all her films, it's a model of indie realism, made with a level of rigorous observation and rueful insight you rarely see in American movies. Williams plays Lizzie, an introverted Portland, Oregon-based sculptor who makes clay figures of women. She has a local show coming up, and she's racing to finish her sculptures in time. But the universe isn't making it easy for her. She works full-time in the office at an art college, where her boss is none other than her mom, who, like almost everyone else, doesn't take Lizzie's creative pursuits too seriously. And so Lizzie has to do her sculpting in her spare time in the apartment she rents out from her friend Joe, terrifically played by Hong Chow. Joe is also an artist, and a more successful one, Her elaborate mixed-media installations have all the wow factor that Lizzie's lovely but modest sculptures don't. It only adds to the tension that Joe isn't the most attentive landlord. At one point, Joe is putting together a swing with an old tire in the backyard when Lizzie shows up to ask about getting her broken water heater fixed. 
Hey, Lizzie. Check it out. Been hoping to find a good tire for this tree for ages. Joe, the water situation's getting worse. Barely gets lukewarm now. Just a few minutes of lukewarm and then cold. That sounds serious. Well, I'm on it. Just gotta get through this week first. Shouldn't even be here right now. I've got so much to do. I do too, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. Lizzie, I told you you can use my shower. I want my own water working. My show's open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show too, you know, just... You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. Reichardt and her co-writer, John Raymond, perfectly nail the passive-aggressive vibe of Lizzie and Joe's relationship without overdoing it. There's real nuance to both characters. You can understand why Lizzie resents Joe's flakiness, and you can also see why Joe doesn't go out of her way for someone as frosty as Lizzie. Things get a little more complicated, but also more poignant, when Joe rescues a wounded pigeon in their yard, and she and Lizzie take turns nursing it back to health. This isn't the first time Reichardt has given an animal a prominent role in her movies, as she did in Wendy and Lucy and First Cow. And we learn something about Lizzie from the careful, attentive way she looks after the bird, even while juggling her deadlines. Namely, that she's used to making sacrifices for the sake of others. Lizzie spends a fair amount of time checking in on her artist brother, who has mental health issues and who's treated by their mom as the tortured genius of the family. She also mediates tensions between her parents who are divorced. Her dad is a retired potter who's going through something of a late-in-life crisis. He's played by Judd Hirsch, who, as it happens, played the uncle of Williams's character in Steven Spielberg's recent The Fablemans. That movie would make a great double bill with this one. Williams's two characters could hardly be more different, but in each movie, she plays a woman who essentially puts her art on hold for her family's sake. The fact that most of her family members in showing up are also steeped in the art world doesn't make as much of a difference as you might think. Reichardt's movie is all about the challenge of finding the time, the space, the money, and the energy to pursue your calling. It's also about how making art can be both a joy and incredibly hard work. Lizzie's story is interspersed with almost documentary-like sequences of the art college where she works. We see students painting, weaving, dancing, and building installations. There's a nicely personal feel to these moments, informed by Reichardt's own years teaching at Bard College and other schools. But she lingers most of all in the scenes of Lizzie finally getting some time to herself at her workbench, molding her clay, setting her figures aside to dry, and then filling in the details with paint. Watching Lizzie lose herself in her craft for minutes on end, I was reminded of just how rarely the movies show us really show us an artist at work. We get a lot of biopics about creative geniuses, but nothing like the richness of texture and insight that Reichardt gives us. 
It hardly matters that Lizzie may not be destined for fame, because you believe in her and her work at every moment. She's a wondrous creation, and so is this movie. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film Showing Up, starring Michelle Williams. On Monday's show, actor Carrie Russell, best known for playing the lead on the TV series Felicity and for starring on The Americans as Elizabeth Jennings, a Soviet spy living undercover in the United States. Russell got her start on the all-new Mickey Mouse Club when she was 15. She now stars in the new Netflix political drama The Diplomat. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. We'll close the show with this track from the new album Stage and Screen by guitarist and vocalist John Pizzarelli. The album comes out next week, April 21st. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. and Cooley. I was resting comfortably, face down in the gutter. Life was serene, I knew where I was at. There's no hope for him, my dearest friends would mutter. I was something dragged in by the cat Then, just in time I found you just in time Before you came, my time was running low I was lost, the losing dice were tossed My bridges all were crossed Nowhere to go Where I'm going No more doubt or fear I found my way For love came just in time You found me just in time And changed my lonely life That lovely day This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.